for initiative. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Roll for Initiative podcast. This is episode number two, record date December 6, 2009. I am your host, DM Vince, along with DM Jason. Jason, how are you doing this week? Hey, Vince, I'm doing great. Good. Uh, well, we're back for a second episode, and uh, hopefully people are out there listening and we're getting a bigger audience as we go along. Yes, doubling it every week. One, two, four, let's go. <laughs> well, right now we're at zero, so uh, anything doubling zero is better than nothing. It is nothing. Oh, that's <laughs> actually, you're right. So um, see what, We'll see. <laughs> so what are you up to this week in uh, your gaming group? Well, let's see. Uh, I'm not going to say the name of the modules that my group is going through because they might be listening to this and I don't want to give away anything but they uh, for those in the know they are near the small town of Saltmarsh and uh, yes yes they have managed to uh, work their way through the haunted house and discover the true nature of that haunted house and uh, work their way out to the smuggler's ship and attempt to take a full on uh, frontal assault on a lot more people than them with a lot more uh, weapons and strength than them. Uh, but luckily, some some uh, convenient Sahuagin <laughs> happened along to join the battle, and they have made their way off to discover where all of these weapons are actually headed and what those lizard men are going to do with them. Sounds like a fun time. How about yours? <laughs> it sounds like a fun time. I, I, right now with mine, I, I'm actually doing a um, homebrew type thing. I'm not really following anything in particular, but my characters did start in their little uh, little town of Ombridge that I made up. And right now they're on an adventure to uh, discover there's a lighthouse that uh, the light has gone out in. And there's this old sea captain that's in the inn that keeps babbling on about it. And they finally hooked on to the hook of this because it took a little while, but I got them to hook onto it. And they're actually going to procure a boat so they can go over to the lighthouse and figure out what's going on. And uh, they'll find out. I won't say much because uh, they're dying to know what's going on in the lighthouse. And I ended it right there when they got to the lighthouse. <laughs> yeah, the cliffhanger is a great uh, ending for the games, especially because I managed to find the cliffhanger right at the moment where I've run out of things that are about to happen. <laughs> Excellent. And if you want to uh, tell us about your campaign or what you're doing or how you run your game, you can always write us at uh, our email address, which is rfistaff at gmail.com. And uh, shoot us up with an email, and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. We'll read your emails on the show. Let's move on to the first feature of the show, as uh, we like to call feature one, or the main meat of the show for right now, uh, where you can get your first edition books and accessories. Yes, this is a uh, pretty important one, and uh, I guess we could have done this in the first, or I'm glad we're doing it at least in the second episode, because if you're going to be playing first edition AD&D, you're going to need some books. Mm. And Back in my day, that would have been pretty easy. You would head down to your local hobby shop or even Walden Books, which is who carried a lot of them back then. Anybody mm-hmm. had them. Now, uh, your first port of call might be eBay. 
Um, for myself, I'm pretty lucky in that I managed to hold on to all of my books for all of these years. And uh, I actually just discovered in looking in the front of my Fiend folio that, in fact, I accidentally stole that from my friend Brad oh. in 1988. So uh -oh. I might have to give that back. Uh-oh. If right. I can find out where he lives. I think he's a, doc I think he's a doctor somewhere. Uh, yeah. I think the last thing he's worried about is his uh, book. So, well, he it's never knows. Especially not the Fiend folio. I mean, that's not even the best one. So, no, 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 no. <laughs> interesting and interesting enough. You said you had uh, back in the day got your books at Walden Books. I got my one of my first books at Toys R Us. Really, they had them there. Ah, uh, yeah. I remember I was I was in Toys R Us. I was about uh, nine years old, and I saw the Player's Handbook, the original covered one mm -hmm. uh, for our uh, first edition. Uh, with the statue, the guys pulling the you know the stone, and I went to my my aunt who was there. She, I was like, oh, I want this book, and she's like, okay, you know, how people were leery about D and D back then. Mm -hmm. she, uh, was she, it God. was it known yet as the Devil's Playground? Uh, yeah, it was, and she was leery oh. about it, but she was kind of like a cool hip aunt, so she got it for me. It was like nine dollars. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Was, there's there's some guy who I, I was thinking we should have him on the show sometime soon. He's an author that spoke out a lot back in the day um, on behalf of D&D &D and other role-playing games when that whole hysteria was going on. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but there was stories about how, like, somebody threw their uh, AD&D books in a fire and they screamed as they burned. <laughs> yes. <and everything. laughs> so uh, I can't remember his name, but uh, Mark something. Anyways, uh, he, he was really good at bringing a little bit of rational discussion to the whole thing back well, then. We'll have to see if we can dig him up and uh, get a little discussion going on with him. That'd be kind of cool to see what he has to say about things today. That would be fun. Um, so, so where people can go to get the books now? Um, like I said, uh, mm. really your best bet to start is probably eBay. I've been uh, keeping an eye on there for some time because I wanted to make sure that all of my players had players' handbooks and I wanted to get them the the first cover, the um, was that Trampier? Was did Dave Trampier do the art for the covers as well? Do you know? Uh, offhand, I don't know. We'd have to look that. I don't know. Up. I'd have to look. Yeah, but but you know what I mean. The the, yeah. the, the first artwork with the the, the awesome yeah demons. Yeah, yeah, that was a oh yeah, that's a great some great artwork. I mean, nothing nothing's wrong with the second printings and the one with the wizard on the front cover. But I do like the original traditional look. Yeah, it it just kind of got all too slick for me eventually. I mean, the first books, they would go down the street and find anybody they knew who knew how to draw something and just have <laughs> them draw something, and it totally shows. Yeah, especially the Monster but, Manual. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. I love the cover of the Monster Manual with the troll that's all, like, out of perspective. Yeah, and, yeah, yep, yep, yep. Anyway, but, uh, back but, on track. Yeah, here. I mean, for me, I, I, I started doing zines back in the late 80s, right around the time that I... I Tape, tapered off a little bit from some of my role playing. I got into making fanzines and music magazines, so I've always loved the DIY kind of aesthetic. And it's one of the things I love about these first books is they really feel DIY. So I wanted my players to have those, and so eBay was the first place to go. And I spent a lot of time looking at what kind of things were there. And you can easily pick up a player's handbook or a DM's guide for probably three dollars on uh, eBay plus your shipping. On eBay. On eBay. I mean, sure, you're going to find some that are going to be really, really uh, 
high quality untouched and they'll charge you more but you don't want to waste your money on that just just get any book they'll all be fun and it's kind of fun to see what somebody might have written in it my luck has been amazon actually that's a good one uh because they do have the whole used uh books Uh, there's Mm -hmm. tons of players handbooks and dm guides and Monster Man. I mean, I've got a DM guide for uh, what was the last time I bought one? It wasn't. It was in used condition, but it was still good. I got mm-hmm. it for a dollar fifty. Oh, that's awesome! Shipping three dollars. You know, whatever. Media mail shipping, but still under five bucks. And when you buy used books on Amazon, you actually are supporting uh, small independent booksellers. So be kind of like your local friendly gaming shop guy. Yeah, I mean, these these used books are not coming from Amazon themselves. They're coming from little bookstores all around the country that have deals with Amazon and they sell them through them. So you you're not you're not taking money away from the little guy. It's it's okay to do that. Uh you can go to alibris.com, A L I B I R I S. I might have put way too many eyes in there. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, but yeah. Uh, Alib- yeah, it's 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 a good site to check out, definitely. Um, and another place, uh, gaming conventions are a great place to go. I uh, recently went to a gaming convention here in Pennsylvania over in, back in November uh, called Mepicon. And uh, it's every, actually, it's a con that's every six months, so the next one's coming up in uh, April. What's that stand for? Uh, Middle, Mid-Eastern Pennsylvania Convention. Okay, cool. And it's uh, held in uh, the Clark Summit area of Pennsylvania, if you're familiar with that. If not, don't worry about it, folks. You can just go to the website if you're in the Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York area, and you can pop over the, in April. It's a pretty cheap convention. It's nice. And I, actually, I got a whole bunch of first edition books for under $2. Oh, that's great. They had a vendor there. The guy had a box. It was a $5 box. And in the box, there was tons of first edition stuff. I picked up six books, and the guy was like, yeah, I'll give them to you for two bucks a piece. Wow. He was just happy, I guess, to get rid of them out of his bookstore. Man, that's that's the find I always wish I would run, come across. Yeah. I'm yeah. always wishing I could go to estate sales, like be one of those people who just kind of travels around to small oh. towns to estate sales, and then you find a big box of treasures that yeah. you know you could hardly imagine. Speak about Speaking about a treasure box of the role of the – I would call this the role of the century if it was a game – my friend, his mother went was throwing out trash one evening. This happened a couple months ago. She was throwing out trash into the dumpster, and mm-hmm. next to the dumpster was a crate. Uh, I shouldn't say a crate. You know, one of those uh, little boxes that kids keep uh, some toys into. Uh huh. What do you call those things? Uh, toy box? Not really a toy box. They're plastic. <laughs> toy box. <laughs> I know that. Like a milk crate. Yeah, it was. It was kind of like a milk crate, but it had a cover on it. Inside there was. First edition D&D books, basic edition D&D books, and second edition D&D books, perfectly preserved. Wow, just laying there. He had, uh, yeah, they were open, but most of the second edition stuff still in its wrapper. Okay, so for anybody who's listening, a great way to get books is to go to the garbage and stand there. <laughs> and just wait. <laughs> just wait. It'll show up. He had uh, um, the original, you know, remember the monster manuals for second edition when they came in the individual wrappers that you put in the binder? Oh, I yeah, I mean, I never saw those, but I know what you're talking about. He had every one of them still originally in the wrapper unopened. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, when I, when I was at um, – so Gen Con has a thing every year. They have the auction room, mm-hmm. and uh, which is really fun because it's got all the old gray beards sitting up there at the table kind of reminiscing about things as they sell them. <laughs> and uh, 
there's boxes and boxes of first edition and second edition stuff that's uh, sitting around there. And I picked up some great things this year, uh, some good old modules, some great Judges Guild stuff. Um, wow. Actually, that's a good, a good thing to bring up. When you're looking for things, uh, it's not just TSR materials that mm-hmm. are out there to get. Right. Some of the best stuff, I think, came from, well, there was three big ones. You know, you've had Judges Guild, which was my favorite, mm-hmm. uh, Roll Aids, and what was the third? Started uh, with a W. I'm losing it. Um, ah, well, there was at least three. <laughs> I don't remember offhand. Yeah, but I picked up a thing. Uh, I'm looking at it right now that I got at Gen Con this year. It's called Fantastic Personalities, and it's a little book by Judges Guild. And I was talking about how I like the DIY kind of feel. Mm. This thing totally feels like a zine. It's printed on something that's kind of halfway between newsprint and uh, cheap catalog paper, and the drawings are all done by somebody's little brother. Uh, (laughs) But it's so well-written, and it's got so many cool NPCs in it, and it's a great thing for me to just flip to in the middle of a game when somebody you know goes into a building I didn't expect them to go into. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that that was a judges' guild. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Did they announce where Gen Con 2010 was going to be yet, or no? Uh, same thing. Okay. Uh, it's going to be in Indianapolis, awesome. and it's going to be a week later. Okay. So uh, I think it's because there's some big, like drum corps or uh, twirling flag thing or something that happens <laughs> around the same time. Oh. I don't know. They wanted to keep it from the whole city from actually shutting down, so they moved it back one week. Uh, but we've already got our tickets. We've got our hotel rooms reserved, and if all the people going with me back out and don't pay me, I've got $7,000 on my credit card that I really don't want to have happen. So, Yikes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've reserved everybody's rooms, but we are set. Uh, Gen Con is a great place for mm. first edition gaming. There's always tons of first edition games going on, and like we said, there's lots of books uh, that you can get there. Um, so if you don't have access to any of these things. If for some reason you don't find what you want on eBay or Amazon, there's still options. Best option, and it's going to be a pricey option, from my opinion, is noblenight.com. It's a reliable one, though. You will find your book, and you, if you want the book, you will get the book, and you will know that the book is in the condition they state. They are 100% guarantee on their books and their reputable site. There are are pricey. You will pay for the book, so just be warned. Uh, it's probably a good place to go if, let's say, you're Christmas shopping for somebody else, and you want to be, uh, you don't mind spending a little bit extra to make sure that the one you love gets the thing they want. True. Uh, and if you are looking for other options, there are what I will call some open source alternatives for players out there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll talk about these more in a future episode, but you've got Osric. Which is a uh, excellent remake or, or an updated version of the first edition core books. Three books into one book. So it's a big hefty book. It's a free download, or you can go to uh, their website and uh, order the book as a hardcover copy. They're not really gaining any money off of it. They're just, it's pretty, pretty much print on demand. So they do, get, they do that through Lulu? Yes, through Lulu. Uh, they get yeah. no money whatsoever from it. It's just pretty much a printing. Yeah, I think Lulu is an amazing site for anybody that's not familiar with it. It's the cafe press of printing. 
only it's high quality. Uh, so if you're buying something from somebody who sells their books through Lulu, you're going to get something that is uh, very high quality. You're going to love it. And if you are printing your own stuff, if you're writing your own modules or rule books for something, it's a good place to go and do that. We should get sponsors for this podcast. Uh, we should be getting some. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've got so many people I want to talk up. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, there's some other options. There is, I believe, uh, Swords and Sorcery, Swords and Wizardry. Uh, they are, have remade the uh, Zero Edition or Basic Edition D&D. Uh, they put that. They've done the white box. Uh, you can check them out. We'll put some links in our show notes so you can go look and download their free copies of it. It's a wonderful stuff. Uh, Matthew Finch, I believe his name is, that's uh, responsible for all this. Mm-hmm. And he's yeah, hopefully a, we'll get him on some time to talk to him. Great, great stuff he's done. Wonderful guy. Very nice. Very, very down to earth. He will answer any question you have about anything. He does run his own zine too, online. I believe it's called Knox Bell Magazine. Which comes out uh, once a quarter. Uh, great magazine. If it's a zine online, how is that not a blog? Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm an old print guy. If it's a zine, it's got to be in print. Love them to death, but mm, it's got to be in print. It's in PDF. Mm, okay, fine. And you can order it print on demand as well. Excellent. There, you, now it's in print. Happy. There you, you go. Made me happy. Okay, well that'll uh, end that, and let's move on to the creature feature theater. What do we have this week, Jay? On this week's Creature Feature Theater is the coolest creature that I have seen outside of the Monster Manuals. It is in the same Dragon Magazine as we talked about last week, number 101, which has the uh, Creature Catalog 3. Mm-hmm. Our creature for this week is the Automaton. Pretty cool-looking creature, if I have to say it for myself. And, of course, the great thing is uh, the picture that we're going to describe here is not what the automaton has to look like because the automaton can be almost anything. So the picture we're looking at in this dragon magazine has a barrel for a body, Mm -hmm. a couple of brooms for legs, ropes for arms, a soapbox for a head, and a tea kettle on top of that. If it sounds a little cyberpunk, fair enough. It kind of is, but I would call it medieval cyberpunk, if that makes any sense. So what is an automaton? So what is an automaton is an actually it's a, it's a creation of either a magic user or a cleric. There's a uh, set number of spells that either one can use to create one of these. Mm-hmm. And it's a, think of it as a little bit like a golem. Mm-hmm. So uh, anybody who's familiar with a golem will know that they are magically animated creatures of clay. Uh, you know, it's an old Jewish uh, mythological creature, the golem. And in AD&D, the golem exists as well. So the automaton is a little bit like that, except that to make an automaton, first of all, you have to use – you can use anything. It doesn't have to be household objects. But you have to use objects that have the ability to move. So if you want it to have legs, you're going to have to make joints. Uh, If you want it to have arms, you're going to have to give it arms with joints. Uh, but you can use all sorts of things to make one of these. You can make it out of bone. You can make it out of metal, out of wood. Suit of out armor. Of le- Sorry? Uh, suit of armor. Suit of armor. Perfect example mm-hmm. because it already looks like a person. Yeah. So in order to, to create an automaton, and let's take a look and see what the spells are that you need. Okay. First of all, you're going to need um, 
materials and labor, and it's going to cost a total of 1,000 gold pieces per hit point. Mm -hmm. So that's important. This is not going to be a cheap monster to make if you're looking to uh, create something as a magic user. The hit dice here is listed as one hit die per foot of height. Mm. So the way I'd interpret that is that if you're going to make a six-foot-tall automaton, say out of a suit of armor, it's going to be a six-hit-dice creature. That'll be eight-sided hit dice for standard monster hit dice, mm -hmm. meaning that if you've just made a uh, full-power one, a 48-hit-die automaton out of a suit of armor, that's going to cost you 48,000 gold pieces in... Yeah, this is not something that a low-level cleric is going to do on a weekend. No, and there's a Once, couple of things that have to be cast also when you make this creature, too. Yes. So the first thing you need to do is to create the physical form for the creature. For this, you're going to need a tinker or a blacksmith or uh, some type of... Specialist. Craftsman. Yeah, carpenter, craftsman, whatever you need. Uh, once you've created the physical form, there's a couple of ways to go about this. As a cleric you would cast Animate Object, Raise Dead, and that's if there's any organic components involved, Prayer, Bless, and Quest. Hmm. You have to cast all of those things in order. A magic user can also create one, and for a magic user, what they would do is cast Geese. So, you know, Geese is the spell that uh, is similar to Quest. It compels the creature to, do, uh, to go on a quest. Limited Wish. Mm -hmm. So that's not a full wish, a limited wish, and we're going to talk about wishes next week. Mm -hmm. Animate dead. So, again, if only if there's organic components involved, like bone, for example. Um, and enchant an item. So all of these things together, uh, whether you're a cleric or a magic user, you have to actually know these spells, be able to cast these spells, and not reading them from scrolls. Uh, so we're going to talk about spells a little bit later in this show, uh, but as a magic user, that means you have to actually be able to know these spells. So if for some reason you were not able to learn Limited Wish, you're not going to be able to make an automaton. Well, that would kind of stink because that's one of the uh, spell components pretty much. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh, so now when you make your automaton, uh, the materials that you make it out of are going to determine some of the uh, capabilities of the automaton in terms of how well uh, it can fight, how uh, strong it can be, and everything like that. The lower half of the body, if I'm getting this right, we might have to go back and check to make sure I'm saying this right, but the lower half of the body has to be made of the same material as the... Uh, the, the main part of the body. So if you've got legs of bone, you're going to need a torso of bone. Legs of metal, torso of metal, etc. Right, right. Uh, yes. So, there, and, and you know, this is, prim I, mean, I think this is really, uh, it's a game uh, requirement to make it a little bit easier for the next part, and that is to determine uh, how you damage one of these things. So they can be made out of four different basic types of material. And, uh, this is actually kind of funny because we just described the picture where he's made out of a wooden barrel with wooden uh, broom handles and brooms for legs. Mm -hmm. Well, wood is not one of the ones that's listed. <laughs> so it's one of those cases of the artist probably not talking to the game designer. But uh, the four that are listed are bone, leather, metal, or my favorite, rope. 
Uh, and I, you could probably uh, come up with one for wood. But what it means is uh, they have a list of different types of attacks, and it says what the attack is going to do. So an acid attack is only going to do half damage against bone, but will do full damage against leather. You can imagine that the acid is going to eat the leather away more easily than the bone. Right. Um, and it'll do full damage against rope. Uh, the next one that they list, I don't entirely agree with. I would probably play this differently, and that's blunt weapons. Because according to this, blunt weapons do half damage to a bone automaton hmm. and no damage at all to any other type of automaton. That's interesting. Yeah. Now, I, I, I see where they're going with rope. Hmm. Okay, so I'm a cleric. I'm taking a mace. There's an automaton coming at me. Smack. It's made of rope. You're right. I'm not going to damage the rope. Metal, you dent it. You're gonna, you're gonna dent it. Yeah. So I agree. You might have a harder time giving it damage, but if you've got a hill giant holding onto a, a tree that he just uprooted and he smashes an automaton with it, he's gonna smash it. Yeah. So this is where remember last week we talked about rules versus rulings. Mm-hmm. This is a prime example of that. Your call. You're uh, the DM. DM, it's your call. Uh, some of the other ones are cold, edged weapons, electricity, and fire. Um, again, fire is doing no damage to the metal automaton. It's doing double damage to the rope automaton. Makes sense. Uh, you can play that through as you will. They're going to be unaffected by poison, obviously. Uh, mind-affecting magic. They don't have a mind. Nope. Um, Etc. But if you know about these and players, if you want to be surprised, stop listening now, but I bet you don't. <laughs> I bet you want to know what to do if one of these is coming after you. Yep. There are certain spells that will instantly kill an automaton. And that is, uh, if it's a mixture of substances, uh, you have to kind of work this out because it is going to matter based on what it's made out of. But for a bone automaton, animate dead will instantly destroy it. Raise dead, reincarnate, resurrection. Mm-hmm. Possibly one of those. And, yeah, and, and that makes sense because, you know, you've got something that's made out of organic materials they had to use. Uh, what was it? Animate dead, or sorry, raise dead initially to create it. So it's sort of coming back and saying, okay, I raise you again, and then, oh, crap, you've just taken all the magic away from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, for leather, blade barrier which I, yeah, Blade Barrier, that's going to definitely instantly kill the leather creature. Um, For metal, transmute metal to wood is a spell that will take it out right then and there. Hey, there you go. Maybe that's what happened with the uh, picture. The guy transmuted the metal into wood. (laughs) Yeah, that's how they were able to get the picture. Obviously, they had to wait until it wasn't dangerous anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You're so thinking ahead of me. That's right. And for the rope, uh, again, the Blade Barrier, or Firestorm, or Rope Trick even. And that's my favorite. Now, this this is where it gets really fun. You know, there's using these spells that you you look through the player's handbook, you see some spells that you're like, rope trick. What am I going to do with that? Well, first of all, some really cool stuff. But especially imagine you're the magic user who was able to learn rope trick and thought to take it with them that day. And here comes a rope creature attacking you. You're going to be the star of the day. You're going to be a rock star. Oh my god, it's a rope creature. Aha. Whatever will we do? I have Ooh, rope trick. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. 
Um, and of course, an automaton. The last thing it says about it is that uh, if it takes more than a third of, a hit, of its hit points and damage, you cannot repair it. So there goes your forty-eight thousand gold pieces down the drain. Okay. Well, <clears throat> you could uh, just because this. We'll post up these statistics on our website when we get that going. Uh, we're still working on that, folks. Don't worry about it. But we throw this up just because we have these up doesn't mean this is all you're limited to. Your imagination is really the limit on these things. Yeah, I mean, like we said last week, one of the things about the AD&D system is that it really is open to uh, – it's like an operating system you can really create things for. So there's a lot of ways you can go about creating your own creatures once you kind of get used to the uh, – the way that they're they're designed here, mm-hmm. and let's just take the automaton. I bet you that people could come up with a lot of really amazing and inventive types of automatons uh, yeah. just based off of this. That yeah, definitely you can uh, half rock, half rope, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Or I'm just thinking about sizes. I mean, I, we we're just talking about a medium-sized, a man-sized automaton. Well, what's to keep a very, very rich, very ancient magic-wielding dragon? from creating a 50-foot automaton. Hmm. A nice little bit of Tokyo monster movie magic coming at you. Yeah, definitely. Mothra. Mm-hmm. Mothra could be attacking. <laughs> okay, well, folks, this is... Or uh, a <laughs> horde of little tiny automatons six inches tall that just drive you insane. I mean, the possibilities are endless with this, the scenarios that you could set up. A la Armory of Darkness with the evil little ashes running around. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> okay. We'll have to come up with some equivalent of shotguns for arms, but I'm sure there's an AD&D equivalent you could think of. Um, we'll figure something out. <laughs> and that is in the Dragon Magazine 101 on page 44-ish. Kind of goes into one page into the next. Uh, if Yeah, 40, uh, right there. And you can pick that up, and you can look at it. If you have that Dragon Magazine, flip it open and uh, read about it, and tell us what you think. RFISTAFF at gmail.com. Well, we're going to move into the next segment we have is our, going into our game mechanics, talking about magic user spells and how the magic right. system works. Go ahead, Jason. Wow, so the magic system. This is, this is a fun one. This is one of the reasons I think that people love to play magic users uh, so much in all systems, but especially in first edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, for people who have been around first edition a bit, uh, it's pretty well known that the magic user is a very stop, unusual stop, stop. class. All right, well, I'll move into game mechanics now. We were talking about magic user spells in the uh, magic system. All right, so the the magic system in first edition AD&D uh, is a really great one. I think it's one of the reasons that so many people like to play magic users in this system. Mm-hmm. Now, the magic user class, for anybody that's been around AD&D a little bit, knows that it's a really unusual class in that they start out practically helpless and over time, as they grow in levels, become immensely powerful. Really powerful. Very powerful. So it's a weird kind of balance in that the balance is over the entire uh, career of your PC. rather, And I should say player character. I just realized that. Actually, it's a good time to make a note about uh, abbreviations and things like that. Okay. So PC, for so long, meant player character until suddenly it meant 
personal computer. So uh, <laughs> when we say PC, there's about a 99% chance that we're talking about player characters, not personal computers. But for those of you at home, roll a D100 and find out what we're talking about. Or just smack your head against the wall and say, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so the magic user you know, is balanced over the, over the career of the character. So at a very uh, early level, you have to play by your wits, and you really spend a lot of time running from things and hiding behind the <laughs> big guy with the sword. And later on, uh, it's just very different. And the magic users in first edition, the way that I've always pictured them, is like the little old wizards or the, the, the geeks of the Middle Ages. Hmm. So if you, depending on what kind of fantasy you'd like to read, uh, wizards come in all different flavors. But if you read Terry Pratchett, I don't, do, are you a Discworld fan? Not, no, not really. I'm, I haven't read much of it at all. So in, in Terry Pratchett's Discworld, you know, all of the wizards at Unseen University are, as much as anything, they're like old gray beard professors, you know, okay. the types that would rather sit and argue about what's for lunch than actually do any magic. But when they pull it out, it's huge. Right. Um, oh. and, and the younger wizards are like just computer nerds, basically. Uh, and, and I think it's a good way to kind of think of magic users in AD&D. They're not there to get in a fight. They're there because they love research and they love their scrolls and they love discovering their magic and everything else. But, unfortunately, to discover those things, you have to leave your house. There you got it. <laughs> you don't just get the spells automatically. Yeah. So, uh, one of the things that happens in first edition AD&D is that, as a magic user, when you want to learn a new spell, you have to learn the new spell. You don't get to just flip through the player's handbook, see the spell mm -hmm. in there, and say, okay, I'm going to pick that one now. No. Uh, you first have to find the spell, and that can either be by going to your master and asking him to teach it to you, if mm -hmm. your master knows the spell. Right. Uh, if your master doesn't know the spell or isn't willing to teach it to you or you don't have a master to go to anymore, mm -hmm. you're going to have to go out in the world and find it. Well, how do you find it? Mm. Well, there's a lot of ways you can find a spell. You could find it on a scroll. You could find it in a, uh, another magic user's spell book. You could find someone to teach it to you. Easiest way, find a teacher. That would be possibly the easiest way, if you can convince them to do it. This depends on your DM <laughs> and how nice or evil they are. Yes. Uh, now, once you find that spell, magic users carry a spell book with them in which to record their spells. And before you can do that, before you can actually write uh, that spell into your spell book, you have to find out whether or not you're able to learn it at all. And so this is where intelligence comes into play. Mm -hmm. The higher intelligence, the better chance you'll be able to learn the spell. Right. So if you're looking at the player's handbook, when you're first filling out your character sheet, you see that little uh, modifier next to intelligence, percent chance to learn spell, I think, something mm -hmm. like that. Yes. Well, that's your chance. So once a magic user goes out in the world and uh, finds Featherfall and says, aha, I finally found this. This is going to be so useful. I can't wait to start using Featherfall. The first thing that magic user has to do, or the player playing the magic user has to do, is roll to see if he can even learn it. And if his intelligence is not high enough and he rolls badly and or, that's it. 
no chance to ever learn that spell again. Well, there is one possible chance again next level. Wish? Next level. Uh, It depends how you play it. Yeah. Again, DM ruling. My ruling is you can try it again next level. Yeah, now see, I might be reading the book uh, correctly or incorrectly, but the way that I'm playing it right now is that it's just a matter of that is just beyond your abilities to understand, kind of like calculus is for some people. Right. You know, I mean, I could uh, try learning calculus over and over again every year, but if my brain can't handle it, it's just not going to get any better next year. Uh, You know, you might want to play it differently in your game. The reason I like to do it that way is that every magic user becomes a little more unique. So you could have a magic user that just has nothing but rope trick all the time. (laughs) You know, it's just what he's got, and he feels bad about it, and he's kicking the dirt. He's like, man, I just got rope trick. And then your DM might just bring you a creature that's really suited to that. Well, yeah, I run mine a little bit more like um, life. If you Sometimes in life you can't really learn something, but over time you try and try and then finally you learn it because, you know, a level like, happens and over life sometimes you learn something. Like, oh my god, I just discovered how to do this. So I give a player another chance. And there's the, the thing about this is, what's kind of neat though, is that even in the DM's guide, it very explicitly states that these spell rules are guidelines and mm-hmm. tells you exactly how to create a spell of your own. Ooh. So how to actually invent a new one that isn't that they have not made up beforehand. And uh, I won't go into all of the specific details, but essentially it lays out for you kind of how to balance it properly, how to figure out what level the spell is that you're describing, and then how to go to your DM and say, I've designed this spell. Uh, what do you think? Does it fit? And if so... Um, what am I going to have to do to learn it? It's very fun trying to design spells and then having your group like uh, <laughs> these weird spells that you design. But we'll get into that at a different time. Yes. Um, but what we should do is take a minute to talk about why the magic system is the way it is in AD&D. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, different, different games have different approaches to magic, and they're all equally valid because, okay, spoiler alert, Magic isn't real, so... <gasps> it's not? Uh, yeah, I mean, we'll talk about Santa Claus next week. Oh, okay. So, he, he's in first edition, it's okay. <laughs> so, so, I mean, any system is, is equally valid. The important thing is to be consistent throughout the game. And what the designers of AD&D did was chose to model it primarily on the writings of Jack Vance who was Gary Gygax's favorite author. And uh, I've been reading Tales of the Dying Earth recently. We're going to review that in a later episode. Uh, But this is a a great series of books. It's set in the distant future when the sun has uh, started to go out and it's the last, I don't know, millennia. Mm-hmm. or million years, however long Earth will have left at that point. Uh, so, so the Earth has become a land of sorcery again. And uh, in this, the magic system is laid out pretty clearly, is that you can learn a spell, and you can memorize it at the beginning of the day, but once you've spoken that spell, once you've done uh, the things that need to happen, it's erased from your mind, and you're going to have to memorize it all over again the next day after you've had a good night's sleep. Huh. So that's the basic mechanic. 
Uh, and, and, and the rationale, I mean, I think it kind of makes a bit of sense. There's another book uh, that I read recently called The Face in the Frost, which is explicitly called out in the DM's Guide as something that's worth um, – actually, wow, I'm looking at it right now. It's on page 40. Um, it says right here, for background reading, you can direct campaign participants to Vance's The Eyes of the Overworld and The Dying Earth, as well as Bel Air's The Face in the Frost. Oh, wow. Uh, and The Face in the Frost, it's a great book. It was written in 1969. It's, it's got all of the wonderment of magic, you know, the, 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 the old wizards with their pipes and their um, – excuse me. <coughs> I'll edit that. Yeah. The old wizards with their pipes and their uh, creaky old houses and everything else. But the magic system isn't exactly the way uh, that it is in the game. But the explanation that's given is that magic is coming – the power is coming from one of the outer planes. So, you know, in, in AD&D, you've got the prime material plane, and then you have all these outer planes, like the astral plane that we talked about last week, and you've got the, the lower, the elemental planes, etc. Well, from those outer planes comes the power that the spellcaster channels through them. They're not actually using their own power. It would burn them up if they did. They're channeling the powers of this extra planar uh, Magic, this world of, of, of uh, powers that are coming through them. So when they do so, the stress and the strain or whatever, however you want to describe it, the power of the magic that's being cast literally wipes the memory right off of their brain. Um, and if you're reading a scroll, it wipes the words right off of the scroll. So those, that verbal part of the spell is actually consumed by the effects of it. Hmm. And that uh, is a good segue into the, the three different components. So, so spells consume the channel through which they pass. And a spell, if you look in the uh, player's handbook, you'll see a V, S, and an M. You know, one or all three of those letters with each of the spells. So, uh, for example, let's see if I can find one here. If I have one quickly at hand, uh, I don't. Um, Magic Missile. Uh, oh, you know what? I've got hallucinar- hallucinatory terrain in front of me. So okay, perfect. That's just as good. Uh, it's a fourth level spell. So it's got V, S, and M. So verbal, somatic, and material components. So every, almost every spell is going to have a verbal component because the words have to be spoken. There might be one out there that doesn't. I just can't think of any off the top of my head. Uh, somatic, so somehow the magic user has to move their hands around in a certain way that directs the energy properly, so uh, mm. they have to have their hands free in order to do that. And then the material component, which is consumed by the, by the magic spell that is uh, cast. And sometimes these material components are pretty obscure, sometimes they're kind of clear and obvious why they were chosen, sometimes it's a bad joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of them are pretty weird. Uh, well, I can think, for example, of the sleep spell off the top of my head, mm-hmm. where the material components are um, a pinch of sand, something else, and a live cricket. <laughs> so, you know, you hear the crickets chirping and Sandman's coming, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so for hallucinatory terrain, the material components are a stone, a twig, and a bit of green plant. Uh, because you're creating a imaginary terrain. So the material components are usually connected a little bit to the spell. And all these things together uh, create the energy that comes out. And 
these things should be amazing and fantastic. And that's one of the things that we talked last week about how first edition is at a human scale. This is a good example of that. When somebody casts a spell, it's a big deal. Right. Shouldn't be a little you know? to do to do thing. No, you don't you, you shouldn't have every single character well in this game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, was about, I was about to get dogmatic, but mm. you know, you don't have every single character class able to wield magical powers and do amazing things with their magical plus one toe of touching or whatever they've got. It's 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 a quite a, amazing thing that can happen. <laughs> toe like, of it, touching. That's what you toe came touching. up with. Yeah, that's what I came up with. Okay. I, mean, there, I, I wish I could remember the movie right now, but there was a film uh, that I saw a few years ago that I thought was so good because the, this, this group of uh, kids from New York, they go down to Florida and somewhere along the way uh, they get in trouble. Somebody gets a gun. And, you know, in Hollywood movies, when there's a gun, it fires, it shoots, people leap to the left and the right, and it's a big deal. In this movie, the moment somebody pulled it out, they did what you would do in real life, go, oh, my God, somebody's pulling a gun out in front of me. Let's freak out about this, and it was a huge deal. Right. And I was like, yeah, that's real life. If you're in a store and somebody pulls out a gun, you don't get all Jackie Chan on them. You freak out and you do whatever you do. (laughs) Well, same thing. If somebody's casting a magical spell that sends bolts of energy flying out of nowhere at you, oh, my God, that's a huge deal. That's not, I'm just casting magic missile again. Yeah, it shouldn't be everyday common type thing like some other games do. Anyway, <clears throat> back and, to And the... so you can get very creative with these. And so some of the spells, you know, there's going to be ones that are uh, uh, big and bombastic and exciting, but there's also the ones that are kind of strange and you wonder when you're ever going to use them until you suddenly realize that it's actually incredibly useful on a daily basis. And I think for most players that encounter AD&D the first time, a perfect example of that is sleep. You know, okay, I've got a sleep spell. Great, I can put somebody to sleep. And then all of a sudden you realize, I'm in combat. There's a horde of harpies flying at me. Now they're asleep. Mm-hmm. That's actually an incredibly useful spell, even if you only get it once a day. Yeah, so don't pitch about what you can't do and can do. So, Yes, and uh, there's a lot of other restrictions. Obviously, magic users aren't going to be wearing any armor or carrying any weapons. You could make arguments for or against that. Um, maybe it's a game balance thing, but I prefer to think of it as just I don't see small, long-bearded professors pulling out broadswords, so no. neither do magic users. Simple it, as that. The whole reason, I mean, armor is bulky and you need to move around. Every magic user has to move around. It's not this little tinkle of your finger or twitch of your nose like Bewitched. It's this right. big motion of hands and throwing components into the air, and armor is restricting. You can't do that with armor. And that's a good tip, actually, for anybody who comes up against a magic user in combat. Spells take concentration, and they take uh, freedom of movement. So if you see that magic user looking like they're getting ready to cast a spell, hit them with an arrow, grab them around the waist, do whatever you have to do. If that magic user loses concentration, they've already started speaking the words, that's it. No spell cast, and it's gone for the day. It's a dud. It's a dud. Wow. Oh. How, how, well, how much of a stickler are you for material components now in your campaign? Oh, I didn't used to be, but it's really fun to be. 
I'll tell you just one quick example of what's going on uh, in our campaign right now. As the players get ready to try to make their way into the lizard man's lair, there's a lot of water around. Well, our magic user has the sleep spell, meaning he has a live cricket that he has to carry with him. <laughs> so if that cricket drowns, no sleep spell. <laughs> it's making for a very fun adventure. Yeah, you can you can yeah, that's definitely kinda cool. He has to protect that little cricket inside his little pouch, yeah. yeah. Yep. No, no, do anything you want but spare the cricket. I need it for my spells later on, yeah. Yeah, so you know, material components you could think of it as something that's a bit of flavor, or you could have a lot more fun and think of them as things, okay, where did you put that blade of grass when the fire came by? <laughs> I've had one DM and I, I've I've done this most of the time because I don't really want to spend too much time on my game mechanics, but I know a lot of people do. Uh, I've had the whole, here's your spell pouch, you have ten uses in it for your material spell. And after those ten uses, that's it. Mm-hmm. you got to buy another material pouch. It has. So you're the, just saying just it has it has whatever you happen to need. Basic stuff, not okay. the, like, you know, the, the the parts of a bone for this or that. You know, the basic stuff. Mm-hmm. That just saves some time and, you know, energy on game mechanics. Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, it all depends on the kind of flavor you want to bring to things. Do you want people worrying about whether they were able to get a glowworm? Or do you want them to just, uh, you know, have the pouch? Yeah. I think it's fair either way. Either way, you know, I mean, I'm giving them, like a, like a said, usage amount that they have to go buy it again. So they are, in a sense, worrying about it before going out on an adventure. Makes sense. Okay. Well, that'll wrap that up. Let's move on to the Dragon Sword. The Dragon Sword. So for this week, we have the Robe of Useful Items. This is kind of interesting for a magic user to have this. Now, what is the Robe of Useful Items? Well, it basically looks like a regular robe just by looking at it at first glance. But it's a little bit different if you actually put it on and take a look at it. There's some pockets in it that you can uh, uh, has some really weird abilities. Like they're like cloth package patches in a pocket, and you rip them off and you use it, and you find different little items in it. So, what can we find inside there, Jason? Well, so this is this is really neat. This to me is one of the more uh, Harry Potter kind of magic mm. items that you can get a hold of. Sort of a, uh, I don't remember what it is. I've, I've read the books, but I can't quote them, but uh, I love the flavor of this particular magical item. So as you pull different patches off, you're always there's some things you're always going to have, and at the very least, this is great, because one of the things it'll always have is a 10-foot pole. <laughs> and that is one of the oldest arguments in AD&D. I pull out my 10-foot pole, and I, wait a minute, where, where have you been carrying that this whole time? <laughs> what 10-foot pole? Yeah, where have you been hiding that thing? Well, now you know. You've been hiding it as a patch on your robe of useful items. Uh, and it, all, it also has the rope, a sack, a mirror, a lantern, filled and lit. So these are things – this is where it kind of becomes fun to make sure that you actually do play the sort of game where you check people's sheets to see that they actually brought stuff with them. Because this if, – if you don't play that kind of game, if you let people just say, now I pull out my rope and you go, oh, yeah, I guess you'd have a rope. Okay, then maybe it's not so cool to find a robe that always has a rope. But if you play the kind of game where resources become an issue, then finding one of these suddenly becomes a great treasure just for those alone. But? 
How are you going to explain pulling a mule out of your pouch? That, I was just happy to see you. <laughs> There's some other interesting things in here, like you can pull out 100 uh, gold pieces in a bag. That can be very, very useful in the right situation. Yeah, these are all random rolls, by the way, now. Uh, which is which is the trouble and the fun. Yeah, kind of like that so, deck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this this is the uh, the trouble and the fun, and you can imagine this in a... Uh, it kind of makes me think of, of Job from Arrested Development. Mm. Did you watch that show? Yeah, yes. All right, you know, with his magic that was always coming out the wrong way. I think this has endless comic possibilities because you're in a situation where what you really need at this point is a ladder. You know that a ladder is possible to pull out of one of the pockets. You reach in to try to get the ladder and you roll a 72 and it's a rowboat. (laughs) (laughs) So now you've got the rowboat and what you really needed to do was to climb that wall. This isn't necessarily going to help. or even an even better example is think of the D&D cartoon from the 80s, the uh, magic user with his hat when he kept pulling out random items out of the hat. Yes. I totally forgot about that. Yes. How he Perfect. Had, he had a, his presto. Yeah, that was his name. That's right. He had a standard of some things he could do, but then there was always that chance that when he pulled something out, it was, what the heck is that? Uh, I would be so tempted with this to start doing the hidden rolls behind the screen so I could fudge it a little bit. I mean, in our game, I'm very into letting everybody see all the rolls and letting people roll their own stuff, even if it kind of suspends the uh, fantasy a little bit, just because, you know, it's fun to roll your own dice and have control over your own fate, so to speak. But on this one, I'd almost want to hide it behind there so that when there's the character that's like, oh, I need to have a potion of healing so badly. If only somebody had one. Well, my robe of useful items will roll, and they reach in, and out comes a pair of war dogs. Yikes. I mean, I would just not be able to resist. <laughs> so much you can do. So yes. little time. Uh, and, and just like the, the deck of many things that we talked about last time, this has possibilities for the DM to come up with their own stuff, and you could just have a blast uh, coming up with things for the robe of useful items. It's a party in a package of robes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think this is the kind of thing that um, I'm going to have to work into uh, one of my adventures very soon, whether uh, it makes sense or not. Now your players know because they listen, so... Uh, yeah, maybe it won't be a robe. Mm-hmm. Maybe they shouldn't listen hmm. to episode two. No, they should listen to episode two. Underwear of useful items. <laughs> I think the most inventive and also stupid, stupid is stupid item I've ever seen created was uh, gauntlets of masturbation. That sounds about right for the typical fourteen-year-old <laughs> game. Yeah, I still. Are there any girls in the tavern? No. Yeah. <laughs> any girls in the tavern? I'm getting. Drunk. I'm getting drunk. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, that'll just move us along and end the Dragon Sword for this week. Uh, Next week, we'll have a wonderful item for you again. We'll try to scour through the books and find something useful for you. Moving along to the Stickler Spotlight this week with Unarmed Combat. And what is a better choice for being a stickler than AD&D First Edition Weaponless Combat? (laughs) There's a bunch of ways to do it. There's the Buy the Book way. There's yes. your own way, and there's the Unearthed Arcana way. 
Uh, there is, in fact, the Unearth Arcana way. Um, I think you can tell by my noise I just made which of those I don't prefer. Uh, the by the book way, right? No, I'm wrong. Just <laughs> um, I don't. Geez, uh, Unearth Arcana way. That's it. Yes. So, so the Unearth Arcana way uh, has a lot of advantages in that it is much quicker to understand. Uh, it could conceivably be resolved more quickly depending on how familiar your DM is with the by-the-book way to do unarmed combat. Uh, and it certainly can just move the action along considering how often you're likely to go up and punch an orc in the face. <laughs> but what it doesn't do and what I love about the by the book way is it doesn't feel like an actual simulation, like you're actually modeling what would happen. And doesn't give those great opportunities for the grappling holds to always end up with somebody flipping somebody else over their head. It doesn't give the Dread Pirate Roberts, Wesley, the chance to beat Andre the Giant the way that the original rules do. So uh, let's go take a look at how unarmed combat works in original first edition AD&D by the book. So you've got three basic types of attacks that you can do. You can do pummeling, grappling, and overbearing. Overbearing is done once, and it's just what it sounds like. You're trying to overbear your uh, opponent to bring them down so that you can then get them into a hold with a grappling hold or pummel them afterwards. It's that first attack to really take them over. Think of the old 60s sci-fi when William Shatner's diving at the guy. Perfect. Absolutely. Uh, pummeling is pummeling. It is punching somebody or pummeling them with, for example, the handle of your dagger, which is called a pommel. And that's where we get the word pummeling. And How they convenient. couldn't resist. Gary Gygax couldn't resist pointing that out in the book, which is again is why I love the old etymologist. Mm-hmm. And grappling is a good a bit old wrestling. It's getting them in a hold, choking them, flipping them, holding them in place, etc. When you first look at the unarmed combat tables in the Dungeon Master's Guide, it just makes your head spin. Yeah. And to be fair, it's an, I don't really think this is the design of the system. It's the way it was written. It's written in a sort of uh, narrative fashion. Uh, it really could have done from a little bit of Edward Tufte-style information design right here to make those numbers clear. Because it's actually pretty simple. Uh, the basics of it are when you're figuring out whether you're going to hit someone. Uh, well, actually, let me back up. There's two parts to it. There's figuring out whether you're going to hit, and then what the result of that successful attack was. A little bit like uh, fighting with a weapon. But what's different is you're not using D20s here, you're rolling percentages. So first of all, with pummeling, when you're figuring out whether you're going to be successful, you're basing it on your opponent's armor class. So the lower their armor class, the better, or I should say the worse their armor class, uh, the better your chance to hit them. Makes sense. If they're wearing plate mail, it's going to be a little bit harder to punch them than it is if they're wearing nothing. Right. In grappling, it's just the opposite. It's your own armor class that affects it. And again, it makes sense. If you are wearing plate mail, you're going to not be able to move as easily. You'll have a much harder time getting somebody in a wrestling hold than if you were just wearing a pair of shorts. Hmm. And pummeling and overbearing... uh, It uses the grappling tables, and you could argue whether that makes sense or not, but let's just move on. (laughs) 
the the next thing that you need to do is to work out your modifiers. And if you haven't filled out your character sheets uh, to include all of these modifiers, then I agree it's going to be a very confusing situation uh, because there's a lot of modifiers you have to bring into play here. So the important thing to do is to simply fill them out ahead of time. Uh, and they're going to be based on things like your dexterity, the type of armor you have, etc. Um, I'm not going to go into all of the details because nobody wants to listen to somebody talk about math. Mm. But they're not too bad. I mean, it, it, there's, a, there's a few percentages and things like that you have to figure out. And certainly the first time that somebody looks at it, there's a little bit of groaning. But once they've got the numbers filled in, if you're using the old uh, goldenrod character sheets, the official TSR character records, mm-hmm. there's actually a section uh, in the bottom left of all of them, which is for weaponless combat, and it allows you to fill in your attack adjustment, damage adjustment, and defense adjustment for all three of these. So your numbers will typically look something like, uh, I'm looking right now at a paladin that uh, I've rolled up here, and for my paladin, Dudley the Unbearable, who has a very high strength uh, and, and high dexterity, he's come out with an attack adjustment of 19, 20, minus 30 for pummeling. So that's an attack adjustment of plus 19 for pummeling, plus 20 for his damage, minus 30 for his defense adjustment. And what that means is when the co- time comes to roll and we're rolling the percentile die to see what happens, he's going to add 19 to whatever percentile die he has for attacking. So, for example, if he goes up against somebody with an armor class 5, it's 50% chance to hit him because it's times 5. He's going to add the 19. He now has a 69% chance to hit. No problem. Roll. You're done. Now, when he finds out that he hits, let's say he does, then we're going to have a damage adjustment. Again, it's plus 20. We're going to figure out a few different... um, possible adjustments such as his strength whether he's using uh you know a device like a pummel of a dagger um whether the defender has a shield you know the kind of things you would figure out and then it's a table that says whether it's a glancing blow a solid punch a crushing blow whether you get a punch again and you just keep on going round and round like that or you can get into a grapple and then you have opportunities to get into things like a waist clinch an arm lock uh, a bear hug a headlock etc and as you roll through these, you can really create a very realistic feeling fight. So the different kind of blows land, this blow hit solidly, that blow didn't. The opponent reaches around and grapples him from behind, gets him an arm lock, flips him over, and then he responds by kicking him. And you're able to roll all these things and come up with an actual result that makes sense, fits the character sheets, and felt like a real fist fight. Hmm. And that's by the book. And that's the way it is, folks. But that's not the only way there is to do it. No. So tell me how you do it. Um, I have a very simple system of rolling a d20, and based upon the armor that you're wearing, that's the minuses you get. So the heavier the armor you have, the more minuses you have. And depending on what you're doing, if, say, you're punching someone, that'll be your... You take the armor class of the person you're punching, and you minus with your... Say you're wearing plate mail, I usually use six. So that you're not going to be able to easily connect with throw a punch that's really that quick in plate mail. Mine is a very simple system because I don't really want to go into all those charts and things like that. <laughs> and, of course, I love charts and numbers, so like, I do. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I love first edition, but there's just some things in first edition I don't want to, oh, to be a stickler about. And But there are sticklers out there which I admire. 
Yes, it's fun. And, you know, we were looking at something on the forums recently. A new uh, person joined the Dragon's Foot forum and came in to ask a question about unarmed combat, mm-hmm. which led to a predictable, very lengthy discussion. But what this particular person asked about was, well, if I look at it by the book, one of the things that um, – what I didn't just mention right now – is that, for example, in grappling, you figure the difference in height and weight. So mm-hmm. you do need to know about how tall and how heavy each of the um, combatants is. And there's a percentage difference. So if you have you know, a 10% difference in weight, then it's going to be a 10% better chance to knock them down. Well, what this person pointed out is that the halfling – uh, attacking a bugbear, for example, a halfling weighs 40 pounds and a bugbear a bug weighs 400 pounds. So that's a uh, 90% difference. And that means that according to the tables in here, the halfling never can bring down the bugbear, no matter what he rolls. Made sense to me. Yeah. Uh, but then what the discussion went on to be concerned with is the fact that in the book, they don't say anything about what to do if two halflings attack. There's just nothing there for, for multiple um, grapples. So you need a system now that's going to figure out what happens when that does. Hmm. Channeling what I hope is the way that Gary Gygax would look at this if you read a lot of interviews with him. One of the things that he complained about is that when he was playing war games back in the 60s, some of his players would if a rule came up that wasn't covered properly or if a situation came up that wasn't covered properly in the rules, they would write to the game publisher and say, what do we do? What do we do? And he actually made fun of that. He's like, guys, figure it out. Just use your, use your brains. Figure it out. Hmm. Same thing here. It's not too bad. You just say, well, the weight, yeah, the weight's going to add up. Their heights, no, their heights aren't going to add up because the halflings aren't attacking each other, aren't standing on each other's shoulders to attack. Uh, you, you do a quick couple of calculations beforehand, and you could come up with the fact that essentially what I found out was that using this model, um, halflings are never going to be able to just run at a bear or a bugbear and take them down, but a couple of them could grab them by the legs and a few of them could then pull them down afterwards and it all works out with the charts as it is in here, which, which I thought was actually just a brilliant piece of design uh, in the way this is set up is that it could be expanded to pretty much anything. And the sad thing about it is there is no one to call for rulings because if you, if you call Wizards of the Coast, who is the current license holder of TSR products, there right. is one person that can help you there, and that person works one day a week. <laughs> Ooh. Well, that is why forums are great, and that's what makes this game great, is the real place to go for an answer like that is Dragon's Foot forums or you know any other uh, first edition forums that you happen to participate in, because if there's one thing that players of this game like to do, it's argue. Definitely. I mean, help each, other, help each other out. Yeah, argue. <laughs> uh, yeah, help. Dragonsfoot.org. We're going to always... Uh, uh, throw a little plug to them because they're very useful. They have lots of very useful downloads there. Lots. They've served uh, the community for years, and it's really just an amazing job that those guys do. Unbelievable. Yes, they definitely are. We appreciate all the work that they do for us and for everybody else and help everybody with their questions and answers and provide space for people, and uh, we're going to advocate them. So, moving on. Yes. To our uh, 
almost last segment of the day. Uh, so this week, we, uh, instead of doing the library, we're going to do uh, a little interview that I recorded last week with, um, uh, I'm going to say Brynjolfsson. Brynjolfsson. It okay. might be Brynjolfsson, but uh, either way, it's Eric Brynjolfsson. He was the uh, creator of a computer program back in 1984-85 called Dragonfire, uh, which some old-school players might remember. It was uh, put out by Magicware, which was also him. And it was the first real commercial Dungeon Master's aid. It's something that you could pull up on your Apple II or your IBM PC or your TRS-80 or your Commodore 64, uh, maybe even a couple of others. And uh, it would handle a lot of what we've just been talking about, a lot of the bookkeeping and accounting and uh, figuring some of the character generation would handle all that for the DM and let you just uh, get on with the game. Cool. All right. And you you uh, this interview on the phone. With yeah, him. I, I uh, tracked him down recently. He is uh, a very important person at MIT these days, oh. uh, but was very gracious and happy to talk about the 80s and <laughs> what he did with Dragonfire. All right, folks, I'll play this. I'll lead us into this interview and play this interview, and we'll see you back in nine minutes and change, or about nine minutes, right? Yeah, that's about okay. that. Okay. So, uh, tell me how you got involved with Magicware. How you, you? What was the beginnings of this? How, how did? What was your involvement in all of it? Sure. Well, when I was in college at uh, Harvard, uh, some of my uh, roommates liked to play Dungeons and Dragons, and I got involved. We had a lot of fun, especially freshman year, uh, playing that. And uh, some of them were extremely creative and came up with far more elaborate versions of the rules than the standard Dungeons and Dragons rules. And I think probably a lot of people end up doing that. Um, and there's lots of uh, dice rolling involved and complicated probabilities. Um, and uh, we, we had a good time doing that. Sometimes we'd stay up all night uh, playing those games. Now, are you talking about the uh, original basic Dungeons & Dragons or the advanced D&D? Well, really neither. I mean, I think it was inspired by advanced Dungeons and & Dragons, and, and uh, my roommates had a lot of those books. But they pretty quickly started making their own uh, versions, their own storylines, and their own rules for uh, different types of characters and different characteristics of them and different kinds of monsters and adventures, and um, each of the characteristics were, were based on different kinds of dice rolls, but mm -hmm. it didn't literally follow the uh, AD&D rules. So one of the things that, uh, when AD&D was designed, Gary Gygax, before he did it, he was an uh, insurance adjuster. Uh -huh. And so he was really into probabilities and how things worked, and it's one of the reasons that it uses polyhedral dice instead of just D6s. Right. So is that one of the things you guys were concerned with at the time, is the way the probabilities actually played out? Well, I wouldn't say that we... Um, you know, it, I think we all had an interest in uh, the, the fantasy side of it, and we just naturally started drawing on our own probability skills and interests to try to, to beat the game and to, to beat each other. And uh, I remember doing up uh, spreadsheets where we calculated what the optimal strategies were for different kinds of characteristics. And yeah. the, uh, the people who played the Dungeon Masters also made these increasingly elaborate rules. So it's kind of a, a uh, what do you call it, a, uh, 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 
uh, an arms race with each side <laughs> trying to uh, out probabilisticize the other side. So I assume, what year was this? This would have been circa 1981, 82. So I'm assuming when you say spreadsheet, you're literally talking about a paper spreadsheet? No, no. We um, So so my uh, college roommate got one of the first IBM. Well, actually, I, I brought an Apple uh, computer to college, an mm-hmm. Apple IIe, um, which had VisiCalc. And uh, when the IBM PC first came out, I remember my roommate got the very, like one of the very first ones. And so we, we were using those. I've actually got, in the other room here, I've got my Apple II Plus from that time, and I have my original yeah. VisiCalc uh, right. sitting next yeah. to it. <laughs> we used so. to, you know, I'd write programs in BASIC and what, and little, you know, we, we would have fun um, writing software for that. So did this get started uh, as something you made for yourself? Whose idea was it to start this? So it was my idea. So after I graduated from college, uh, um, I, w- I knew I wanted to start a, a company. You know, uh, I was inspired by uh, Steve Jobs and the other people you read about. Um, uh, one of my, uh, my my roommate's brothers went and worked at Microsoft. And so um, we thought, well, that seems like a fun thing to do. So we decided to start a company. And um, since we enjoy playing Dungeons and Dragons, I thought I'd combine computers and software. And, and I think you may have seen the ad in... Uh, Dragon Magazine, where we said, uh, I think the slogan was something like, bring your computer to the dark ages, combining those two interests. You actually have it exactly right. I've got the March 1986 issue open to page 7, where you've got a full-page color ad. Yeah. And actually, in lots of these, you guys have what must be some of the most expensive ads in Dragon. Yeah, so well, I we you were selling a couple. <laughs> yeah, we were selling a few thousand of them, and uh, I really like that artist whose name just slips my mind. But um, I, I think we ran into him at one of the conventions. We went up to uh, to that Dungeons and Dragons convention in uh, Wisconsin. At Lake Geneva. And, yeah, yeah, Lake Geneva. Gen Con. Gen Con. That's what it was exactly. And um, there was that artist. Does it say in the corner? I hope we can credit um... him properly, but. You know, I don't see a signature anywhere on this. But but anyway, we commissioned him to do it. I think we paid him something like five hundred dollars, and he did. He, we had these great posters too, so I have some of those at home. Um, <laughs> and it was uh, nice art. We used it for the cover of the uh, uh, the boxed software as well. And uh, yeah, it was it, it, it sold reasonably well. So I think you- actually, it, it got. I've run into people all over the world who have used it and. I think the copy protection wasn't very good on it because most of them told me they never paid for it. <laughs> the uh, Did you have any connection to TSR? I mean, did you work with them at all? Were they aware of what you guys were making? Well, the only connection was um, buying the ads. In, no, we didn't have any business connection with them. Because if I, I actually wonder, was this uh, set up to work with multiple sy- game systems or just with uh, AD&D? So... No, multiple. I mean, it was, it was very um, flexible. The basic idea was you could define your own uh, different kinds of vegetables. I mean, the, the main thing it did was it, it would roll lots and lots of dice for you. Mm-hmm. So you could specify what your what characteristics you want to. If you wanted to have you know, 20 trolls with various levels of strength and uh, agility and everything, you could uh, push a button and it would instantly create all of those unique uh, characters. Um, by by rolling the appropriate dice in in software. 
So, and, and you could you could specify your own rules as to what kinds of uh, probabilities you wanted to have them fit. Really? How? Well, you, you just ask. You know, the, you could have you know uh, five twenty-sided die or, or whatever it was that you wanted to, okay. uh, to, to to for each characteristic, and then it would instantly roll them. Or or you could ha choose uh, the top five out of six. Um, various rules like that you could specify pretty simply and then it would create those characters and you could save them and in the future you could you could draw on them again what, and, what and language was, was this written in so the I think it was so what we did we wrote a first version of it that was kind of simple but I did a lot of it on, in uh, in Pascal and then I hired a, a college classmate to write a, a better one he was a real computer programmer his name was Tim Farlow and he wrote that we called Dragonfire 2, which is really the one that sold mostly. And I, I don't know whether he wrote it in C or, or Pascal. I'm not sure. Wow, um, because, yeah, I know. I mean, it, at that time in, you know, eight, 1982, I was 11 years old, I guess. And I remember I had written a program in BASIC, and I discovered really quickly just how non-random the uh, random function in BASIC was on an Apple. Right. So yeah. I wonder how you guys – I mean, there must have been – a big part of it was just getting the randomness. Yep, yep. He had a random number generator that I think was, was you know, of course, it's technically a pseudo-random number generator, but it was, um, it was, it was pretty random. I, I don't think we ever detected any non-randomness in it. Um, I don't remember the algorithm that he used for it. Um, the main thing was trying to get a good user interface with pull-down menus and, and that kind of stuff that was sort of state of the art at that time. In the second version or the first version? The, the, the second version. The first version was just almost like a prototype uh, de facto. It's something we used ourselves when we played. The second version was really the, sort of the industrial strength one, and it was flexible enough that we wrote a version of it for the IBM PC, for the Apple, and for the Commodore 64, which was a pretty popular computer back then. Yeah, in fact, the ad that I'm looking at says, Reserve now for Atari and TRS-80. Right, so we, that was a, a test to see if we get much demand for them, and not enough people reserved it to make us worth make it worth uh, porting the program over to those uh, so, machines. So you were doing a lot of stuff at that point. You were very much a proto uh, dot com startup in, in the way that you were. Startups were an unusual thing to do at the time, and certainly trying to do uh, some test feelers and the fact that it's set up in sort of a shareware approach. It looks like. Yeah, like well, one of the things. Of early ideas here. Yeah, we tried to create a little ecosystem. It, it didn't quite take off as much as we hoped, where people could write modules that would work with Dragonfire. So, for instance, the basic Dragonfire was kind of like a, an empty skeleton that you could populate with your own ideas. But then we also had some prefab modules, we called them. Uh, one was a, a forest module, one was a dungeon module, one was an ocean based module um, that had a whole set of characters and monsters and and setting all written up in advance in a little, uh, usually about a 15-page booklet that describes the, the setting. So, so if people wanted to, they could just grab one of those and use it. And my hope was that other people, users, would write their own modules and, and, and we'd have kind of some kind of a shareware system where people could uh, work in other, you know, use other people's settings if they wanted to. But we didn't quite get critical mass for that. Well, I guess it's different in a time when you have different modes of communication as well. Yeah. You know, if it had been uh, in the Internet era, I think we would have been much easier to get critical mass. But as it was, um, communication was a lot 
clunkier. I mean, people would have to literally mail us physically because most people didn't use email or, right. or the Internet. So I remember even at the time there was a kind of ongoing debate about the role of computers in tabletop gaming, whether they belonged, how much should be there, etc. Did you ever think about those kind of issues, and do you think that this gives any insight into where we are today in terms of digital versus um, analog things that people do? Well, so one of the things we did with this, which uh, I still think is a good way to go, is we tried to make this the software a uh, an aid or an adjunct to people playing the game uh, on their own. So it, it didn't take everything over. It was really meant to take the drudgery out of it. So there's some boring record keeping and dice rolling, and and unless you're an accountant, uh, was we say Gary Gagax was a uh, actuary. Actuary, uh, that's right. Yeah, unless you really enjoy that, um, you, you might prefer having the uh, the software take care of all that bookkeeping, and that way the players can focus on the the role-playing and the fantasy and the storytelling part of it. So it's a good it's a division of labor between uh, man and machine in terms of what they each maybe are best at. So finally, um, I just want to ask about, like in, in 88, I think it was, something like that, yeah. uh, Strategic Simulations came out with a similar thing. Uh, did that affect uh, what you guys were doing? Um, m- maybe a little bit. You know, I think that um, around that time, um, I started going to graduate school at, at MIT, and we also, that other business I was telling you about was really t- taking most of our time and attention. So we, um, we weren't really focused on doing any new development for Magicware. It was just something that uh, we let run, and uh, um, I, I think it sort of uh, went through its natural life cycle. I, I had some hopes that Magicware would really take off, and we would sell, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. Um, but we only sold, you know, several thousand uh, copies. And that wasn't, you know, it wasn't bad, but it wasn't exactly something that was going to be a, a full-time uh, uh, occupation for me. Yeah, it's funny because were you to release something like that today for, say, the iPhone, you'd probably have a million downloads. That may well be. Yeah, exactly. I, I think it is much easier to get... You know those big hits now, and uh, so so different different era. Have you ever considered uh, releasing the original software into the wild? Um, that's an idea. Well, you know what we did sort of towards the end of its life cycle. Um, I did go and talk to uh, Electronic Arts and some of the other game companies about uh, taking over the rights for it. We got along in, in, in some discussions for it, but we never quite were able to come to a a deal. Uh, in retrospect, yeah, maybe we should have gone just completely open source with it. That wasn't such a... I don't remember ever thinking to do that. That didn't seem to be something anybody did at that time. and um, So I, I didn't think to do that. I certainly don't remember hearing the phrase before the late 90s myself. So No. Well, I'm glad to hear that you still have the poster up on your yeah. wall. Uh, if do. you do find out who the artist was, let me know, and we will credit him. We'll mention his name on the podcast. Yeah, he did a great job. I never did meet him, but you know, he he pretty much we told him what we wanted, and uh, he as you as you can tell from the artwork in the ad, he did a really beautiful job with it. And uh, in fact, I think it says in some of the ads we we started selling posters as well uh, as the software, just because it was such beautiful artwork. 
Wow, awesome. Thanks, Jason, for that interview. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I'm looking at the, the ad right now. The poster really is amazing. It kind of makes me wish that uh, they were still selling them somewhere. If anybody goes and sees the picture in our show notes, they're going to really dig it. Excellent. You can put put that up so everybody can see what that's like. And uh, I, I, the guy really sounded energetic. He sounded like he was reliving the day back when he was doing everything, playing D&D. You can definitely hear it in his voice. Oh, yeah. He was just great. He was just great. Uh, if you have an interview or uh, a segment you want to send to us, an MP3 or just a file, or you want us to review something or you want us to talk about something, give us a shout-out. RFISTAFF at gmail.com is our email address. And our website will have up shortly. And uh, that's going to conclude Episode 2 for this week. We should be uh, releasing our shows on a weekly basis, hopefully. And we'll be back next week with a bunch of wonderful topics for each and every one of you wonderful listeners out there. Wouldn't you say so, Jace? I, I think they're all wonderful. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and uh, if you want to send us bumpers, like a lot of the podcasts are doing bumpers, that we'd appreciate that too. We have to think of a catchphrase now too. Yeah, I think so. We will um, have to uh, – we'll come up with ways for people to participate because I think it would be great if everybody who wants to uh, contribute something to the show and get involved has an opportunity to do so. So send us in your questions, your emails, rfistaff at gmail.com, and we'll read them on the air. This is DM Vince signing off. And, and this is DM Jason, so keep it original. Have a good night, folks. for initiative.